Well, we just read Psalm 2, a psalm about the inevitability of opposition to God and his plan, a psalm about the futility of opposition to God and his plan, and it's a psalm about the surety of God's plan to exalt his son and through him to bring judgment and salvation to the world. You can turn with me to Acts chapter 12, but before we get to Acts chapter 12, where we see the realities of Psalm 2 play out, you could stop on the way, at least in your mind's eye or in your memory, at Matthew 2. In Matthew 2, here in the early pages of the New Testament, we have that story of Herod the Great feigning interest in this newborn baby in Bethlehem. The wise men have told Herod the Great that this is the king of the Jews, the promised one. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, like an eternal ruler coming out of Bethlehem. Recall that Herod wanted to know the exact location of that baby, not so that he would go and worship, but so that he could possibly wipe him out. And when the wise men didn't return with the exact location of the baby, Herod had all male children two years and younger in Bethlehem murdered. He was hoping that just one of those murdered would be this this king of the Jews. He wanted to get rid of anyone who might pose a threat to his reign and power and glory. Of course, you know the story. God led Mary and Joseph out of Bethlehem and into Egypt before Herod's sword arrived in Bethlehem. They were saved, and Herod was thwarted. So like Psalm 2, Matthew 2 is about the inevitability of opposition to God and his plan, the futility of opposition to God in his plan, and the surety of God's plan to exalt his son and bring salvation and judgment to this world. Well, these same realities were played out throughout Jesus' whole life, especially the cross and resurrection. These same realities were evident in the early church In fact, if you remember back in Acts chapter 4, as we've been studying this book together, you might remember that the disciples back then in their prayer refer to Psalm 2 after imprisonment and threats and beatings even. They saw Psalm 2 being worked out afresh, the inevitability of opposition to God and his plan, the futility of it, and the surety of God's plan. Well, Acts chapter 12 Our passage for today doesn't mention Psalm 2 at all, but the same realities and promises are are highlighted again for us. And here in vivid drama, humor, it's sobering, it's exciting, it's fast-moving, and it's instructive all at once. So let's read Acts chapter 12, the whole chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. 
And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the story of hopeless Herod and the sovereign God. Let me suggest that there are five turns in this story. The first we might call severe persecution. In the first five verses, there is severe persecution. Now, we've read of severe persecution happening in Jerusalem already in our study of the book of Acts. 
Back in chapter 4, it was the religious leaders, the the so-called Sanhedrin that was dishing out the threats and imprisonment and then beatings. By chapter 7, it's a man named Saul, you might remember, who is heading up the persecution against the church. And now in chapter 12, there's a new source of this persecution. It's King Herod. Who is Herod? There are actually several Herods in the Bible. It's not just one guy who happens to be everywhere. There are several different Herods. There's Herod the Great. That's the one we read about in Matthew 2, or at least referred to. Herod the Great, back in Matthew 2, was the grandfather of our Herod in Acts chapter 12. That second Herod, the grandson, was called Herod Agrippa. In between those two Herods was actually another one, Herod Antipas. He's the one that John the Baptist preached against and lost his head. He was the one that held trial for Jesus before the crucifixion. But Herod Agrippa is our guy in Acts chapter 12. He was three-quarters Jewish, and he saw himself as Jewish. He, He played up his Jewishness. He called himself the king of the Jews. He was somewhat religious, but only pragmatically so. He desired to please Jews, as Luke, the writer of Acts, and other ancient historians all emphasize. He was a a powerful man, but a people pleaser. He was known for squashing uprisings and potential controversies. He was known for keeping peace, even if by violent means. And so verse 1, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. The church, the disciples of Jesus, would have been thought of by outsiders as instigators, as part of an uprising. And so he had Herod, he had James killed with the sword. Now this James is one of the apostles. This James is not just an apostle, he's, um, he's in the top three of apostles, you could say. There's an inner circle among the twelve that Jesus sometimes spends extra time with. It's Peter and John and his brother James. These are the three that saw the transfiguration alone. These are the three that went deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with Jesus alone. So you can imagine the blow that this is to the church in Jerusalem. James's head was cut off. Not only that, but because James's death pleased the people, it emboldened Herod. Verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter also. And he's intending to do the same. So Peter... Is arrested. And notice how Luke stresses the aggressiveness of the arrest and the thoroughness of the imprisonment. Verse 3, you have the word arrest. Verse 4, he was seized. He was put in prison, delivered over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Verse 5, he was kept in prison. You see how Luke is just emphasizing this. Verse 6, Peter is between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries, that is soldiers or just guards, are before the door guarding the prison. 
This is no ordinary prison arrangement. Back in Acts 5, the apostles were imprisoned there. And an angel came and got them and said, go and go preach. So they were busted out by an angel before. Surely Herod has heard of that. And he wants to make sure it doesn't happen again. No drowsy guards this time. He's got four shifts of four guys behind an iron gate, in prison, in a cell, with Peter shackled to two guards, one on each side. This is double, triple, or quadruple the normal means of imprisonment. By the way, notice that Luke just says, seemingly in passing, verse 3, this was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, that's not just a, a time marker. That's not a throwaway sentence. It's ironic. At a time when the Jews were to be celebrating God's deliverance from his enemies, the so-called king of the Jews was murdering and imprisoning his own people. At a time when God's people were to be celebrating God's great salvation of the past, the people were instead celebrating the murder of God's messengers of salvation. Peter was in prison for something like seven to eight days. Herod was waiting for the festival week to pass. And no doubt, Herod's intentions were clear to everyone, Peter especially. He knew what happened to James, and he knew why Herod was waiting, and he knew what Herod was waiting for. He knew what was on the other side of Passover. It was his execution. So put yourself in the shoes of the rest of the apostles and the rest of the church in Jerusalem. James is dead. Peter the ringleader of the apostles, the spokesman, is in prison. And the clock is ticking, and everyone knows the schedule. And then we pick up in the story on the last night before the execution. What do you do if you're the Jerusalem church? What do you do if you find yourself in such dire circumstances? You say, that's it. Number two is killed, and number one is in prison, quadruply bound, Awaiting execution, should we just give this thing up? Well, no, they pray. While Peter was in prison, earnest prayer for him was being made by the church. So now the second turn in the story. Divine intervention. Now we know why Luke was emphasizing the layers and layers of security in that prison it's to show the uselessness of that power compared to God's power when he decides to act. So you've got to love verse 7. And behold, that's a worthy behold. And get this, an angel of the Lord shows up in that cell. Lest you think this is just some sort of human messenger, uh, like a you know, retired special forces guy who gets Peter out. No, the, the whole cell was shining with light. This is a heavenly messenger. We're not told whether the soldiers were put to sleep. How'd this work exactly? How'd the chains come off? We're not told. 
But we are told Peter's perception of what was going on. Not much. That was his perception. Not much. For starters, he was asleep. Now, on the one hand, that says something about his confidence in God. Again, he knows the timing. He knows this is the night before. He knows that this is his last night in that prison either way. And he's asleep. His confidence is in God. That's uh, remarkable. It's amazing. He he experienced uh, an angelic jailbreak before. And so maybe he's sleeping, thinking, yeah, God can do that again. On the other hand, God, Jesus, had promised that he would one day die for Jesus and for the testimony of Jesus. He might be thinking, well, this is it. And he sleeps. On the other hand, Peter's sleepiness in the jail shows us that this miracle sure wasn't owing to him. Uh, The sleepiness of Peter, even the drowsiness throughout the whole story, shows us his uselessness in getting outside the prison. One of those uh, Mission Impossible movies with Tom Cruise begins with him in a prison in Russia, and then those who are bailing him out or getting him out, uh, you know, the, the cue music plays. I think it's a Dean Martin song. And then the, the doors open. But then Tom Cruise is on his own after that. He's got to get himself out of there. Not so with drowsy Peter. The angel struck Peter on the side, it says. It's a strong word. He whacked him. Get that? The angel whacked Peter. Get up! And then he gives them this to-do list like you would give a a drowsy teenager in the morning. Get dressed, put on your sandals now, get your coat, start walking, one foot after another, follow me. And Luke tells us Peter didn't even know if this was real. He thought it could be a dream. It was only after that he realized that it was real. And then he realized everything was real. The angel, the light, the chains falling off walking past a guard, and then another, and then an iron gate opening. Literally, it's in the Greek, it opened automatically. (laughs) So Peter concludes in verse 11, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod in all that was supposed to come to me. Now let's not forget James. James was not rescued. James's death and Peter's deliverance are purposefully, I think, put together here in this story side by side as a reminder to us that God does not always rescue his people from physical trouble or even death. James, an apostle, one of the big three, he didn't get a rescue. Stephen, remember, from chapter 7, he didn't get a rescue. He was a great preacher. He knew the Old Testament well. He boldly got to Jesus. His face shined like an angel. Who kills a man with a face like an angel? They did, and God allowed it. God doesn't always rescue his people, but God can rescue his people from anything. So soldiers, squads, Sentries, shackles, and iron bars hold God back not one bit if he decides to act. 
We shouldn't conclude that James was killed and Peter was freed because the church prayed for Peter and forgot to pray for James. That's not intended here in our passage. It's not, it's not because God must have liked Peter more than he liked James. No, we don't know why James died and Peter was delivered. We know that Peter isn't always going to be delivered. He wasn't always delivered. We know eventually Peter died and died a, a horrible death, likely being crucified upside down. So don't develop expectations and presume upon God based on Peter's deliverance, forgetting about James, but neither should we forget about Peter's deliverance. Let's celebrate it. Let's stand in awe of it. Our God is able to deliver us from anything. Like the three Hebrew children said before that fiery furnace, O Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, but if not, we will not worship other gods. They believed God could rescue them. They didn't presume that God would, but he did. And how glorious it was when he did. There are so many wonderful stories like this throughout church history, not just in the Bible. John Patton uh, a missionary, a Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the 1800s. He has one of the more famous stories like this. Quote, one night, hostile natives surrounded the mission station, intent on burning out the Pattons and killing them. Patton and his wife were praying during the terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers leave. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. Remembering what had happened, Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning down the house and killing them back then. The chief asked, who were all those men with you there? Patton replied, there were no men here, just my wife and I. But the chief insisted. They had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments standing guard with drawn swords in their hands, and they seemed to circle the mission station, so we were afraid to, to attack. Praise God. Let's gather up the lessons that we should be drawing from Acts 12 thus far. We shouldn't be surprised by opposition. Jesus said, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. He actually said, woe unto you if all men speak well of you. We shouldn't be surprised by opposition, even severe threats, even violent persecution. We should take note that God may not deliver us from every foe and every threat. We should pray. We should pray like the church did. We should pray for God's help. We should pray for his deliverance. We should pray for the faithful endurance of those who are under persecution. And we should know through it all that God is able to deliver us from any fiery furnace. Let us not demand that he will. Let us not be shaken when he doesn't. But let us not be surprised when he does. Ephesians 3, our God is able to do abundantly more than we ask or think. Don't be surprised when he answers prayer. Don't be surprised when he answers your prayers better than you knew to pray. 
that leads us to this next section here, verses 12 to 19. We might call it double confusion. Double confusion. You see, there are two responses to Peter's angelic rescue, and both have an element of confusion to them, yet they end up in very different places at the end. First, there's the disciples' confusion in verses 12 to 17. Peter, after the rescue, he shows up at the house of Mary, the, the mother of Mark. Now, by the way, side note, this is most likely the upper room, the room in which Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, where they prayed together, where he taught them things about the coming of the Spirit. That is likely the same room as where the 120 disciples met for prayer in Acts 1 before the Holy Spirit fell on them. And if it's the same room, look at what are they doing here in Acts 12? Praying. Many were gathered together praying. No doubt they were praying for Peter, as is explicit in verse 5. It was for him. It doesn't say exactly what they were praying. It doesn't say that they were praying for his miraculous release. They sure may have been. They may have also prayed a more general prayer like they did in Acts 4. In Acts 4 when they prayed, they said, Lord, look upon their threats and give us boldness. That's a pretty general request. It it might be something like that that they prayed. We're not told, but they're praying for Peter. And while they're praying, Peter arrives at the gate of the house and he knocks. And now the humor starts to drip from this passage. It's, it's so utterly human that there's no way it was made up. The servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door. She hears Peter's voice in her joy and excitement of hearing Peter's voice there outside the house. She forgets to open the door. Picture like a courtyard. Some of you have a a front door, and then you go a little ways, and then there's a gate at your house. Picture something like that. Someone's knocking from the gate. She forgets to go open the gate. She runs back inside to tell everyone there, it's Peter, he's here. And they don't believe her. They think she's crazy. You're mad, they say. Stop it. We're praying for Peter. He's here, she insists. And they say, come on. It must be his angel, which likely means they presumed him dead already. Like this is his spirit or his guardian angel that has some place to go now because he doesn't have anything to do with Peter. And so it's probably him that you're seeing, an angel. And all the while, Peter just keeps on knocking And so they all eventually hear it, and they go out, and they see it is Peter, and they are amazed. And apparently there's continued commotion going on, because in verse 17, Peter has to motion with his hands for everyone to be quiet so he can tell them what happened. What a great, hilarious scene. Isn't it something that these disciples were confused Isn't it something that these prayerful disciples were slow to believe that Peter was free? God had released apostles from prison before, as I said. He's the God of the fiery furnace and the lion's den. He's the God who parted the Red Sea and rose Jesus from the dead. 
And so this church was right to pray. And they prayed earnestly, we're told. They kept praying. They're praying here in the middle of the night. All that is so very good. But when God answered their prayer, they were confused. They couldn't believe it. What an encouragement to us, to people like me, that such great saints as these were but men still, right? They're not perfected yet. Their faith had limits like ours. What a powerful indication here of how humanly impossible it was for Peter to be freed. You know, from one angle you can say they rightly doubted. Peter was quadruply bound. Things looked bleak. It was the night before the execution. But what a great reminder this is that God doesn't need us to get his plan done. He doesn't need drowsy Peter to get out the door. And he doesn't need these doubting disciples to get Peter out. What an encouragement that God works better than our prayers deserve and better than our faith ever earns. What an important lesson that we shouldn't be surprised by anything with this God, the God who speaks worlds into existence out of nothing. So what a comfort that we can trust him whatever befalls, as we sang earlier. We can sing in rain and sunshine. But then there's Herod's confusion. There's the church's confusion, which led to their celebration. But Herod's confusion, you see, leads to his frustration. Soldiers, can you just picture it? Frantically searching for Peter, blame-shifting, trying to come up with a story, finally reporting it to Herod. We're told in verse 19 that Herod himself was searching for Peter. And then he interrogates the soldiers, and he's got nothing. There's no human explanation for what happened here. And so his confusion leads to frustration as he pours his anger out on his soldiers and kills his soldiers. He at first planned to kill Peter, and so he put his best men in maximum security to keep Peter guard until he could be killed. But in the end, Peter is free and Herod's soldiers are dead. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? God laughs. He holds them in contempt. He will set his king. He has set his king on his holy hill. And Jesus reigns. So, oh kings, you better be wise. You better take note, rulers of the earth. You better serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son. Bow before the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Our God is not only sovereign, he saves. He not only judges, he also redeems. Herod should have known of Psalm 2. He should have applied it to the situation. What will Herod do? Well, fourth, hopeless self-exaltation. 
hopeless self-exaltation. Verses 20 to 23 take us to another time and place, but the focus stays with King Herod. The background to these verses is that Tyre and Sidon, two coastal cities, depended on Herod's food bank. And apparently they had done something wrong to anger Herod, and Herod had cut off some or all of the food supply. And so messengers are coming to Herod, pleading for mercy, and that is a perfect situation for Herod to milk it, to inflate his overinflated ego. And so he puts on his royal robe. He takes his seat on his throne. He gives a, a fancy oration to the messengers of Tyre and Sidon who are, who are dependent upon his mercy. And so they respond as they know he would want them to respond with flattery. Oh, the voice of a god, not man. Oh, they're so impressed. Or at least they pretend to be. That's good enough for Herod. Remember, Peter was arrested because James's death pleased the people. And Herod thought, yeah, more people pleasing. He loved to please the people as long as they were pleased to adore him. It's all about himself. He should have known of Psalm 2. He should have known of God's words to the king of Babylon through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 14, God says to the king of Babylon, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol. And so it was with Herod. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Because he did not give God the glory, he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. You might wonder if Herod's death, as it's recorded here, is just the fanciful storytelling of Christians and not something that anyone else would, would support as historically accurate. But what Luke records here is actually the history. Listen to Josephus. Josephus was a, a first century Jewish historian, not a fan of Christians at all. And he wrote this about Herod Agrippa's death. Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited spectacles in honor of Caesar. On the second day of the spectacles, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theater early in the morning. There, the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun rays, 
shone out in a wonderful manner and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. His flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, that he was a god. And they added, be merciful to us, for although we have hitherto only reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. But he shortly afterward looked up and saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was a messenger of ill tidings and fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain arose in his belly, striking with a most violent intensity. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence, that is God, thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me. When he said this, his pain became violent. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. Josephus writes that in the year 93 or 94, about 30 years after Luke wrote Acts. Isn't it astounding? The Bible stories aren't fables. They're history. And yet it is history that preaches unapologetically. So Luke isn't shy to interpret this divine history by telling us that, that God struck Herod down because of his vain glory and because he wouldn't give God the glory. Luke, the author, not only gets the history right, but he also tells us what it means and tells us how to apply it. You see, Herod's self-exaltation and his condemnation are instructive for us today, even as Christians. They are warnings for us, like, like Saul, King Saul's downward spiral into sin and self, which you read about in 1 Samuel, so we can look at Herod here and be warned. Don't think that because you're not a king or because you've never killed an apostle that you don't have a bit of Herod in you. It's easy to spot and loathe in a Herod. But what about ourselves? Many of us don't have the guts to put on a silver robe as if you could even find one. But we do like to look our best before we snap that selfie, don't we? Don't we? This is the cultural air we breathe today. Self-promotion, power, getting yours, self-congratulation, the praise of men. More and more, these are the ideals, the norms around us. We see it in our Professional athletes, we see it in our celebrities that are known for nothing but being celebrities. We see it in many successful politicians and businessmen. They have a lot of Herod in them. Ironically, this is a lesson that James had to learn some years before. Yeah, the James that was killed at the beginning of the chapter... He had a less than stellar moment back in Mark 10. Would you turn there? 
In Mark 10, James and his brother John get the not-so-bright idea to ask Jesus to have the right hand and the left hand on either side, on both sides of his throne in glory. Lord, can we be vice president and chief of staff in your administration? They're, they're jockeying for power. <clears throat> they're claiming power, hoping to anyway. They're hoping to claim power and prestige and prominence before someone else thinks to do so. They're, they're certainly putting themselves at the front of the apostolic line by this request. And look how Jesus responds to their request in verse 38 of Mark 10. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's referring to the cross and the payment for sin. And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you actually will drink. Not the payment for sin, but death. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And then Jesus teaches the rest of the disciples. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One thing Acts 12 tells us is that James learned the lesson. Eventually, James learned what true greatness is as he was willing to lay his life down for the gospel. Jesus laid his life down in a, a vastly different way in that he was a ransom for sin, a payment, a payment for guilt. James didn't lay his life down that way, but James followed in the footsteps of Jesus and laid his life down in the service of others and the service of God. James learned true greatness. Herod didn't. Herod thought like the kings of this world, push yourself out there, right? Lift yourself up. Show up in the shiniest clothes you got. Give an impressive speech. When they call you a god, say, oh, please. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, this, isn't, this isn't hope. This isn't the answer. It's destruction. It's ruin. It's demise. Eternally so. But in Jesus, there's payment for this very thing. There's an answer to that ugly heredness that's in all of us, that's, that's bent in on self and wants others to be bent in on ourselves, focusing on us. Jesus died on the cross to pay for ugly sins of self-exaltation. The ones that are brazen in silver and those that are culturally acceptable and familiar to us all. I pray today you would believe in this Jesus and receive the mercy that you need because 
We're all by nature bent and broken and folded in upon ourselves. We're without hope. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him, Psalm 2 says. Now the last turn in our chapter we could call gospel multiplication. This is the result after all the ups and downs of this chapter. After murder and imprisonment and release and frustration and judgment. Then verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That is, the disciples multiplied as the word spread. The word of God was increasing and multiplying. It was spreading and making more and more disciples. Nothing stops God's plan to build his church. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, let alone Herod, let alone prison bars, let alone Peter's drowsiness or the disciples' doubt. We don't always see how the Lord is building his church. We don't always feel like we're in a season of advance, and certainly some seasons are more advanced than others. But it's what's happening. Jesus told a parable about the kingdom. He said, it's like a farmer who goes out in his field and he just throws seed. And he goes back home at night and he goes to sleep and he doesn't know how it happens, but under the ground, a seed germinates and it grows up and this keeps happening and keeps happening. This is the kingdom. It will keep happening until the harvest. There is a harvest coming. There'll be a full number of God's saved people redeemed. His, his name on their foreheads forever with him. And yet there'll be some that aren't among that number Remember, Psalm 2 talks about that. You better kiss the son. You better bow before this king, or else he'll be angry. You see, his mercy is a, a reconciling mercy. So if you don't want to reconcile with him, you have no business with him. He will welcome any who come to him who are interested in reconciliation through his grace. And if you're disinterested in that, then he'll leave you all alone to yourself, which means your sin, and your judgment forever. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Is he building it with you? Is he adding you to it? The harvest is coming. Seeds are being scattered even now. We can't see it in this soil out there. We can't see where or something's happening below the surface. Maybe today it is, though. Maybe for you. We pray that it is. When Jesus returns, there'll be a harvest, which means there'll be a reckoning. That reckoning could happen sooner than when Jesus returns, just to ask Herod Agrippa. Sometimes God just takes judgment to an immediate level. But it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. There is a reckoning. 
And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord, the King, the Son of Psalm 2, the one who has inherited the nations, the one before whom all the world must bow or flee forever. Why, why, oh why, do the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed? God laughs at those efforts. He has set his king on his holy hill, and his king is a refuge for those who will take it. And he is scary for those who refuse it. Christians, let us not be surprised by suffering of any kind, not even persecution. Let us pray whenever we find ourselves in trouble. Let's pray for others who are in trouble. Let's remember that God answers our prayers better than we know to ask. Let's remember that sometimes he delivers and sometimes he gives grace to go through death. Let's be sobered by God's hatred for silly self-promotion and vain glory. We shouldn't be about ourselves. We should be for his glory and for his mission. So let's join him in his mission for this unthwartable spread of the gospel in the world. Let's be encouraged by the inevitable success of his kingdom that's shown to us here in Acts 12. And let us keep on with this mission and with this God until Jesus comes. Let us long for that day when Jesus will come, when the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, make us long for your coming. Make us long for your presence. Make us long for heaven's worship. Make us long to be free from our sin. Oh, Lord, make us long for the day when we will be freed from this bent in on ourselves and will use every bit of our efforts and plans and creativity for your glory and for your worship. Lord, give us a taste of that today, this week, in the days to come. Give us more and more of it as we long for the day when you come again. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done, for all that you are for us. Help us now to sing of it to your glory. Amen.